Right now, we're living in a consequence-free environment for total bullshit. There seems to be no consequence for just making stuff up. It's just pay to play. And as long as you can get your affiliate fee, it's fair game. And no one seems to care that it's completely inauthentic. Most consumers can't tell shit from Shinola. And this person is some Twinkie with no background, no brains, no training whatsoever. It's going to say, these are my favorite skis. And they kind of go, that sounds good. I'll buy it online. No, no, no. There's nothing right with that sequence. And it stems from the complete collapse of authenticity on the part of the media. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, going deep into the world of gear today with one of the best minds in the game. First, a favor. Please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is a lot of fun, but the email newsletter is the heart of this whole operation, where I'm breaking down the world of lift surf skiing and breaking news all year long. Here's an example. One of the major multi-mountain passes is adding two new partners next month. Do you want to know who they are? I'll have a write-up locked and loaded and in your inbox the second those are announced. So get in on that. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal for more frequent updates. All right, let's talk about Mountain Gazette. Have you subscribed yet? If not, why not? I'm telling you, having this thing on your coffee table is going to change your whole day. Let me tell you about Mountain Gazette 197 which is heading to the printer in the coming weeks. The spring 2022 issue is going to be stuffed with the kind of picks and stories you will not find anywhere else. Here's what I mean. The new issue features a stunning photo gallery of outdoor culture in Kiev, Ukraine before the Russian invasion. There is a story about mountain town soccer prospects and a photo gallery by the one and only Jimmy Chin. Yes, that's right. The Oscar Award winner makes his Mountain Gazette debut in issue 197. Plus, long-form stories about skiing, the Jackson Hole backcountry, biking, whitewater rafting, climbing, and much more. If you think print is dead, you are wrong. The only way to reserve a copy is to subscribe. Go to mountaingazette.com to lock in your subscription today. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 86, Jackson Hogan, editor of RealSkiers.com, author of Snowbird Secrets, and all-around gear guru. Let's start here. I know you guys don't come to me for gear. At least I hope you don't. Because in this part of skiing, I only know what smart people tell me. And the smartest guy in the gear writing game is Jackson Hogan. Look, I know a lot of you have that DIY mentality. You want to fix your own car, repair your own washing machine, paint your own house, which is fine. I get it. That is a very admirable characteristic. But a lot of you take it too far. And you think you're going to hack the system and buy your gear online and maintain it yourself. Why? Why are you doing that to yourself? With boots especially, there is just no substitute for expertise and someone who approaches boot fitting as the art and science that it is. 
but don't listen to me. Listen to Jackson. Let's go. My guest today is the editor of realskiers.com, a website dedicated to helping skiers find their perfect match. He is the co-author with Guru Dave Powers of Snowbird Secrets, a guide to big mountain skiing. He has spent decades as a ski and boot tester and has worked as a ski designer, binding and boot product manager, freestyle competitor, retail salesman, lecturer on risk management, ski instructor, marketing director, resort feature writer, OLN and RSN television host, extreme camp ski coach, desperate measures co-creator, four-time Warren Miller screenwriter, and research and development chief. Jackson Hogan is my guest. Jackson, welcome to the storm. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Stuart. I look look forward to it. So let's start here. How was your 21 to 22 ski season? How much did you get out and what were the highlights? Well, as you may recall from this last winter, Colorado aside, uh, the West did not do very well from a snow standpoint. We, We suffered and we suffered pretty much all season. I think my first day of the year at Alpine Meadows, skiing with my friend Rick Stalker, it was the only powder we saw all year. And that, mm. oh, no. <laughs> talk about a head fake. Yeah. Uh, it never really showed up again. But every day I go skiing, I love it. And I so I always have a good year because, for one, I never count the days. So I'm never disappointed because I didn't get enough days in. <laughs> and I always get out of town. I do manage to break the bonds of the local scene, which I, I, I think I'm very fortunate to ski where I do. But there's nothing like a road trip. Is Alpine Meadows your home hill? It used to be. More and more, I go to Mount Rose just because it's a little bit quicker. And if I'm testing skis, it is infinitely better set up, just organically set up without my doing anything extra than Alpine or Squaw. Yeah, and they're really building up Mount Rose as well. They have a third high-speed lift going in this winter, uh, this summer. So that place is really coming out of the scene. It's a terrific little place. And you could, I treat it like the gym. I can go up there for two hours, get 20 runs, <laughs> and, uh, you know, keep Jackson in shape. And then, you know, uh-huh. I can do my work. So it's, it's really convenient. And that's a workout. I mean, that's, I believe their base elevation is around 8,500. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah. It, 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 that's why another reason you go there in low snow years is because they actually have a decent cover and they manage it very well. Where else did you get out this year? I know you did your pilgrimage to Snowbird. That's a regular. We'll talk a lot about Snowbird later. Uh, But where else did you find yourself this year? Well, I also went to Sun Valley um, once for a vocal intro of the Kendo 88, which was a nice little jaunt early in the year. Uh, I had trouble getting in Delta and <laughs> Delta is not oh, no. a friend. Uh, so I was absolutely trashed the entire time I was there. I didn't really enjoy it that much, except the first day was a powder day and we had good visibility that morning. Things just sort of went, <laughs> went downhill after that. <laughs> I also got back to Sun Valley for the hall of fame inductions because I had nominated Greg Stump to the hall and therefore I felt it incumbent upon me to, uh, attend his actual induction, which went great. Uh, once again, this time I drove. Um, I do not recommend trying to ski the day after a seven and a half hour drive. (laughs) (laughs) I stayed with could not have been more gracious, gorgeous home, but they had nine dogs. 
Oh, no. <laughs> so I did not sleep <laughs> the entire time I was there. That's amazing. Uh, so I can't say I had the greatest time at Sun Valley on my two trips there from a ski standpoint, but it's hard not to like Sun Valley. Mammoth, of course, um, down there, for at least for the trade fair, terrific. I love the way they run the place. Um, and then, of course, as you say, uh, Snowbird and, and with it, early trams. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. Well, the trams are tiring this year. How do you feel about that? Not, not the tramp, they're replacing the cars. I, I think it's probably time. I'm, I'm, I suppose some billionaire will park one in his apartment somewhere as a memorabilia <laughs> or something like the chairlifts at Vale or something. But I, I'm comfortable with, with anything they do to that place. I think the world of Dave Fields, their uh, general manager, uh, I'm not sure title ain't also be president, but he's he's come up through the ranks from the assistant to the PR director when I first met him. And his toes are definitely in the snow. He cares deeply about his place. And uh, he's, he's one of those people who is on his product every day. And I have a lot, I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah, it seems to be the consensus about Mr. Fields. And we'll get a lot more into Snowbird. What's your ski story here, Jackson? Let's go back. Where did you grow up? And when and where did you begin skiing? I grew up skiing in Peru, Vermont. My parents' main home was in Chappaqua, New York, which allowed my father to commute to the city, which he absolutely hated. So on Friday, we'd all be in scramble mode, you know, sort of all our feet on the, on the sprint line, ready when, when he, his car hit the garage. We had to have the, you know, station wagon packed and ready to go. Uh, <laughs> And I started at the age, well, before the age of five, but at five, uh, it was 1955. My parents had uh, built their first, the first piece of what would be their dream home in Peru, Vermont. And so that became the place to go to every weekend, every winter, every chance uh, the family got. We skedaddled out of Westchester County and, and went up to Peru where we skied on Bromley Mountain. And the only drawback from my skiing development was as the fifth of five children, and clearly a mistake, <laughs> uh, I was sort of like never really accounted for. It's sort of like, oh, where's John? Oh, well, I don't know. We lost him somewhere. They didn't buy me a lift ticket until I was nine. <laughs> and I climbed up the Lord's Prayer, which is the, and there's signs saying, do not walk up the hill. I can't read. <laughs> I started <laughs> five. I don't know anything. Um, and I had such poor, we had no base wax except what you could paint on. And by the mm-hmm. time my father had finished painting everyone else's skis in the family, he sort of, well, you know, give John these, which are missing pieces of the edge and don't really have any wax on them. <laughs> and I, but that enabled them to be like snowshoes because with the first step, you, you earned a layer of snow on the base. I, I was six inches taller by the time I got to the top. And, uh, <laughs> I had to have a brother or sister come up the lift and scrape the snow off my base as it was literally impossible to go downhill. Um, That's where I began. As you could tell, instruction was not part of the scenario. My parents Mm -hmm. wanted to buy me a dollar. Eventually, I did learn to read during this period. (laughs) (laughs) And I could see that the lift ticket was going to cost them a dollar fifty. I can certainly understand the economy in that. And of Uh course, no money for lunch either. That was regarded as a frill. So I would go into the Boar's Head Lodge and pretend my parents had left me and, <laughs> and join another family. And they would buy <laughs> hamburger and fries. And, you know, my own family would come in, look at me with sort of thinly veiled disgust. 
Um, <laughs> in the ski enterprise in order to get into the lunch scamming business, but uh, you know, nature will find a way, whatever I... Right. <laughs> they weren't helping much on the ski side. They didn't find out until I was nine also that I had, uh, I'd stopped breathing when born, which is very bad for eye development. Mm. And okay. they threw me in an oxygen, the oxygen that's really bad for you. They throw you into a hyper-oxygenated environment so that you live, uh, which mm-hmm. succeeded. But nobody thought <laughs> about the fact that when somebody tossed a ball to me, it hit me in the face. They just thought, God, this last mm. one was really uncoordinated. I was virtually blind. I was, I don't know if you yeah. were aware of dioptic corrections, but I was over nine and a half in one eye and nine and a quarter in the other by the time somebody said, have you had him checked? <laughs> <laughs> So all these things probably hampered things like hand-eye coordination development and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I mean, you can see that my parents' investment in my teaching, would, you know, my learning process was as little as close to zero as humanly possible. <laughs> uh, so you just learn by following. So you're sort of struggling through this uh, unideal conditions with, with, it sounds like probably I'm going to guess, hand-me-down gear. Oh, yeah. What sparked the love of skiing in you? in spite of all that? The freedom. Once you figured it out, once once when I was about 12, I started to sort of figure out what made these sticks go left and right. <laughs> and, uh, it, it was liberating. And some of, some of it I, I became good at. I had good fast twitch muscles, so I could ski slalom and I could ski moguls. And I loved air. So... Air probably sort of symbolized freedom to the nth degree. The more I was, became competent, you know, the more my appetite for air sort of grew. <laughs> it, it, that's so interesting because it, up until probably the late 90s, air was sort of discouraged in large parts of the skiing, uh, in, in large parts of, of controlled ski areas. And it wasn't until the park scene blew up the free skiing movement and snowboarding came along and all that other stuff that it really became sanctioned. I remember even when snowboard or terrain parks came on the scene, they were quote snowboard parks and skiers weren't allowed in them, at least in the Midwest where I was skiing at the time. So it's interesting that you, that you developed that love of air back in the fifties and sixties. How, to what extent did you have to go to find good air back then? Cause I remember me and my friends in the nineties, just, scoping out the whole hill to find that one little bump that we could we could sort of speed up to and get enough air to call it a jump but it wasn't a sanctioned jump it was usually something left over from the groomer or something else and if the patrol caught you making a jump they would come and stomp it down so how did you how did you hack that well there i i bridged several eras in what we'll call risk management at ski areas such that when i was a a a tween, you know, maybe I'm 11, 12, up to the age of probably 15. Um, and I'm skiing on at Bromley, for the most part, alone, or sometimes with friends or family, but a lot of the time alone. Um, I got to be friends with a couple of patrolmen. And one of them in particular would take down, they would put up at the top of this area, this little nickname, the waterfall at the bottom of Paps Blue Ribbon Run at Bromley Mountain. The very last shush, you have this great air, great air. It's probably like a 60 foot long landing area, right? But in New England, you're coming out of the woods for the most part. <laughs> right. um, 
it's it was a you know it was a big air and he would he would pull the solemn poles off for me so i was i was actually assisted by the patrol <laughs> nice. I would, you know and then i would you jump as far as you could down the hill with, and make sure you did not reach the flats. <laughs> um, so that sort of, that was one. And there was another place on coming off the, the front face of Bromley uh, that at the very top, there was a berm developed because there was a snow fence there. So that created a natural berm. So jumping that, and then of course, jumping the fence, ooh, you know, high drama, uh, was another favorite launch pad. Uh, but when I got to Colorado uh, in 1972, um, freed from the bonds of having to race or anything like that, that's when I really started. And plus, you had all this great imagery of freestyle skiing just you know, coming surging forward and some great athletes showing you what aerials could really be, where I started to actually develop a repertoire and started to actually develop you know, knowing <laughs> how to do it, you know, learning about hang time. Um, and then gradually, you still didn't have a lot of local role models you could follow. Um, we learned to flip because the OV demo team came to town in Breckenridge and the three guys in the team all built a kicker um, that was all fully sanctioned. And the whole town went upside down. I mean, the you know, bartenders, the dishwashers, the, you know, the owners, the patrol, you know, local heroes, everybody went upside down. So it was... Um, we were growing together, if you will. But that, I was also in my early 20s, so you're mindless and fearless. Right. Are you still an air guy? You still like to catch air? L4, L5 doesn't think much about landings. But <laughs> I, but air is a natural part of skiing. To me, it's not an adjunct to, it's a part of. It's, it's how you get through certain mogul fields. It's how you learn to ski line. It's how you transition in certain areas. So while... I spend most of my time absorbing things that my back would protest about. Um, if it's feeling really good, I'm foolish enough to say, "Well, let's you know, you know just get off the let's just get off the ground a little bit more," because you don't want to feel pinned to the earth. <laughs> Skiing is mm-hmm. right. flow, and part of that flow is including in places where it makes sense to be in the air. And as long as it's not violent, you know, sure, I can take. 20 or 30 feet of air. Well, 20 or 30 feet of air isn't very much if you're skiing 40 miles an hour. You just pick up your right. feet and you can go to <laughs> uh, But to me, it's, I, I would say it's, in, it's integrated in the sport and sort of indivisible from it in a way. Well, you've got a lot of really interesting things to say about technique that I think, I think the listeners will find really insightful. And we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about Snowbird Secrets, your terrific book. So, so you, you learn to love skiing growing up to Vermont, sounds like he got into a little bit of a racing regimen. Just take us through how you really developed into a skier and then how you came to work in skiing. The transition to work comes with the venue. I've, so I've left Yale. I, I navigated through there waiting until the very last, <laughs> waiting until the finish line was in sight before actually doing any of my spring semester's work. Uh, <laughs> so it was, it was, as I detailed, I believe in one of the chapters of the making of a skier, which is on uh, realskiers.com. When I left Yale and, and the purpose driven life there, I went to Breckenridge and you're there to ski. So you're immersed in it one way or the other. Um, I went to Copper Mountain and, and it was just opening that fall. So I joined the ski school. Um, even though this, I had never <laughs> actually taken a lesson in my entire life, I was now going to go 
teach them. And I think I was probably the 20th of the 20 people they hired, wow. um, which was probably 10 more than they needed because I never <laughs> had any lessons. But what I did get was clinicked a lot. And I remember being clinicked by a guy named Dave Sanctuary, who was the technical director of PSIA in the Rocky Mountain region, none of which meant anything to me at the time. And he chose me as an example for his clinic because I was doing, following my race career, at that, a, a two-track wide stance style, not a very wide stance, you know, a hip width stance, but I was, I was not feet together. I was not classic Arlberg technique that was gone. And he was trying to show these other more experienced instructors to get their goddamn feet apart. And mm-hmm. be like Hogan does watch this, you know, <laughs> okay, <laughs> down, you know whatever. Um, so I learned independent leg action and, you know, became a better mogul skier and a better line reader once I sort of broke up the monopoly of, you know, foot together skiing. Uh, and then you, after that, I was a good enough skier that wherever I was, I was skiing with the best people on that mountain. And then when I transitioned to working in the industry, I skied with the best people in the world. I didn't just go to the factories. I would ski with the designers. I remember going to, everyone wanted to see the American who was rating their skis. So <laughs> I go to Fisher, the top Fisher guy, say, Lawrence, go out to Jackson and, and look at his skiing and see what he's doing. And I'll uh-huh. never forget skiing with uh, Rupert Huber, who's the creator of Fat Skis, the creator of, you know, brilliant designer at Atomic for many, many years. His nickname was Keeley because of his skiing style. And he, he would, he had, the Austrians are unabashed about this. They just take you out and inspect you like you're a piece of meat. Say, okay, now ski. And just, <laughs> any particular style auto that you want me to ski? Say, just ski correctly. And I go down there. Well, ski correctly to him means pretty much racing style, pretty aggressive edge sets, you know, lots of rebound, lot of cross the more, you know, a lot of uh, sashaying across the fall line. So I remember skiing right down to him and I say, okay, you know, Keely, how'd I do it? He'd go, perfect (laughs) (laughs) that's what you want to hear (laughs) i wanted to hear because that's really the only answer that would suffice so that Mm -hmm. got ready but i had to go i had to go past my ritual you know with everybody at some point especially the austrians they french are a little you know just go ski Uh, (laughs) how to ski (laughs) (laughs) so how did you develop this particular affinity for and expertise in in evaluating, testing, writing about gear? Well, my career at Solomon quickly moved in from from working sort of in an education field and certification to product management. And Solomon was on an absolute tear in the 80s in product development and introducing one new sector, you know, blockbuster hit after another. When I was still there in 1986 is when they asked me to start to train the North American field force to be ready for a ski. So one of the things I did was set up ski tests and would go out and get 10 you know, different models of skis and set them up and run the, you know, the entire field force through them and through a particular methodology and try to train their mind. So that's where my original um, ski test training came from. Um, my involvement with uh, the, the technical side of the business began quite serendipitously. I was, I'd only been at Solomon for less than a year working in the field at so low on the ladder that they had to create a new rung, still lower <laughs> rung, <laughs> me to hang from, uh, called a service rep. I was highly experimental. The idea was to see 
um, they could actually support in three sales territories, an extra guy to do all the training so that the reps could do their selling. Okay. So that got me all around the West and got me in the company, but I was again, lowest rung, but only bilingual guy, apparently in the US. <laughs> and okay. a couple of things happened. I was, they said, okay, you do, we, we need a video for our training for next year. You're going to write it. I said, when and how? And I said, you're going to write it on the plane trip to Europe because you're flying, you're flying next week to ANSI and you're going to, we'll shoot the video there. This is John Creel, head of our ad agency. He'll get all that stuff together. You're in charge of story and getting the thing done. Well, I'm on the fourth day of a five-day you know, trip over there when the call comes in that the boot product manager in the U.S., a gal named Catherine Dragner, had quit. And they're planning to launch the boot the following season. And they will now have no product manager and a field force that knows popkiss about skiing. Right. I mean, less than nothing. And so uh, the f- call goes in to me, who is conveniently still in ANSI, to, to get over to Chavano, where the boot, the beginnings of the boot department are. They've been in R&D for several years now. Um, and meet this guy, Thierry de Chervon, who has this comic book-sized head. I mean... Uh, <laughs> I remember something in Doonesbury who, who character who had it. And so, oh, like when, when Doonesbury was caricaturing Barry Bonds, that's what it was. It just, okay. I can't, I can't. And this was Kenny de Chalouin, this enormous, looked like a super intellect. You expected wires to be coming out of his brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he hands me this tome that looks like the Paris phone directory, and it's their right. technique for, for all, everything they've learned about boots. And he okay. basically, the message is, we need you to translate this in its entirety. <laughs> We need you then to create from it a manual for the U.S. market, and we also need you to train the U.S. field force. And I said, wow. you, you realize I make less than $10,000 a year <laughs> as a service I, I have a higher travel budget than I have in my salary. Um, they said, hmm, don't care. French is good. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so here we go. So... Um, do the two-day immersion um, with the field force that summer at the Parker House, and uh, did the entire translation of the. So I knew I knew a lot of technical French terms after that right. that I hadn't known before, um, and that that charted a course. After that, I became a product guy, and then the the person who was supposed to be doing the boot after that, after the person who was replacing Catherine, he fell into a large bag of cocaine, never to emerge. So that job turned to me, uh, once okay. again, without the virtues of additional compensation. But I, I gradually, they became embarrassed about that. Said, yeah, <laughs> a little more. You know, he's eating out of a vending machine. Um, oh, gosh. And uh, so, the, you know, reputation and so on. And plus, work finds the people willing to do it, right? So eventually, I became the guy who did, built the business plan, did the market studies, which paid me invaluable dividends over time because I knew the exact size of the U.S. market, something which we don't know today, by the way, hmm. thanks to the thoroughly incompetent, quote, unquote, leadership of the current SIA, um, one of the many things that they've punted out of bounds over the years. So how did you make the transition then from a representative for a specific brand to writing about and evaluating skis, boots, gear from multiple brands? Simple. Uh, I, I quit Solomon. They um, had new people in power now, and they wanted to weaken the U.S. 
subsidiaries for reasons I won't get into because it'll bore your poor audience to tears. But I, at any rate, I said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm giving this company everything I have for nine years. I'm done. I quit. It wasn't for a little while, but it wasn't too much later. I think maybe that summer, that fall, I get a call from John Fry and the New York Times is starting a new title called Snow Country. And they've heard that I have a good technical background. And um, what have I written for the consumer market? And I said, oh, lots, you know, having written nothing. Um, Send right. a sample. So I said, not a problem. So I hang up the phone, quickly write a sample <laughs> <laughs> and send it off to him. And John Fry comes back and says, Das, this is just what we're looking for. You tag, you're it. You're our new equipment editor. Said, By the way, you know anything about boots? And I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so great. And off we went. And uh, that was a terrific relationship. John Fry was a great gentleman wonderful raconteur and by far the best editor I ever worked with. And I was so fortunate to land there. And he just loved my writing style. He immediately loved the sort of the humor, which I had learned to inject in my writing because I was a binding product manager trying to train a field force that could give a holy hoot Mm -hmm. <laughs> about right. how many screws are in the toe piece or whatever the thread pitch is or whatever that. And if I wanted them to read one word of a memo that I would send out, it better be funny. <laughs> <laughs> so you learned how to blend technicity and nothing is more technical or more boring than bindings <laughs> and make it something that the reps will actually read. And from transferring that to the consumer market, well, what do I want to read about this stuff? Let's make it interesting. If you're going to write 60 reviews, don't write them all the same. Make it interesting. There was a, a writing at the time was nowhere near as lively, but the key to it, our instant adoption and success with the consumer was we didn't throw a big golden blanket over 20 skis and say, they're all great. We said, I, I'm coming out of prototype testing. Prototype testing, the goal is to find one ski among the many, not 20 right. among the many. <laughs> and so I said, this, this ski finished first. That's number one. And the next ski is going to be number two and so on. And you would have thought we'd burn the Rosignol offices to the ground. They were in <laughs> flames over all of this. And eventually we had to have big, you know, industry-wide powwows summoned so that they could try to put the fires out around the ski test because a lot of traditional powers didn't like being ranked, you know, 16th. <laughs> so, but the consumer loved it. And we shot to the top of the circulation ranks and, you know, buoyed by that, I was given more budget and told to hire a, a best quality test team I could, and they didn't have to ask me twice. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I went out and hired the best looking women and the best guy skiers on the mountain. And, and we had an incredible test team. And a great methodology that I developed, and I created some software with this guy to, you know, use to, to crunch it. And we shared the scores with our readers, and we were pretty much on top of that world. I mean, good journalism seeks the truth, right? And not everyone in the ski industry then, it sounds like, or now, understands that. And you mentioned John Fry, who was really a luminary in the ski industry. I, I don't know that there's an equivalent to him today since he passed a couple of years back. The, the ski media has lost a lot, in my opinion, in this shift to digital. So just just take us back. And I, even today, I kind of think, you know, if I'm not 
if I'm not making someone mad, I'm not doing it right. Right. Because I, I think a lot of ski journalism today is kind of pay to play and it's a lot of stoke and a lot of hype, but you know, there is a market for the truth. Right. And, and that's what I'm after. And, and it sounds like that's what you were after at snow country. So just take us back here, Jackson, to the ski media when you started at snow country, which I, I believe that publication debuted, uh, was it early nineties, late eighties. It just take us back to that time and, and what ski media was like and what it's lost in the intervening decades. It's such a difference. It is a, it is an, totally different world. Right now, we're living in a consequence-free environment for total bullshit. Uh, there's, there seems to be no consequence for just making stuff up. It's just pay to play. And as long as you can get your affiliate fee, it's fair game. And no one seems to care that it's completely inauthentic. It's, it, that's the, and I, some consumers, I would just have to say, seemingly based on my numbers, most consumers can't tell shit from Shinola. And this person is some Twinkie with no background, no brains, no training whatsoever is going to say, these are my favorite skis. And they go, well, that sounds good. I'll buy it online. No, 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 no. There's, there's nothing right with that sequence. Nothing. And it stems from the complete collapse of authenticity on the part of the media, on the part of the quote unquote press. Um, that used to mean print and print only. But the advantage of print only is you had a gatekeeper. You had an Al Greenberg at skiing. Um, who could set up with Carl Etlinger, uh, uh, who was not who was a you know, hired hand by the magazine, but a great technician, um, and he would actually use the press as a means of informing the public about the latest developments in in skier safety. And you can't imagine that happening now. There's nobody competent enough to collaborate with anybody at ASTM. By the way, I was also the general secretary of ASTM's Snow Safety Committee for several years. So I was very intimately involved in standards development and know that world down to the last detail, because that's, that's what the standards are all about, is the last detail. Um, any rate, you, the involvement of editorial was deep. People like Doug Pfeiffer um, at, at skiing uh, prior to Al Greenberg had practically created the mystique and excitement around the hot dog skiing that became freestyle skiing, et cetera. You, people like Dick Needham, they, they lived ate and breathed it. John Fry innovated things. He created the Nation's Cup. He, he, you know, he helped to foster and develop NASTAR. Uh, he, he understood so well, I think, the whole dynamic of the sport. Now I run into editors who don't even understand English, who have people <laughs> writing for them who, who are writing history articles. This is the history of Muskie Boot, who are wrong. In almost every detail, they're wrong. You can tell how many phone calls they made, too. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> they went to the right people. <laughs> you totally missed the boat. You didn't even, you could have talked, because he's still living, to the actual designer of original, you know, two-piece and three-piece shells if you'd bothered, but you're not really a journalist, are you? And that's what we've seen. I mean, that's, and that's for ski. That's supposed to be the credible title. Never right. mind all the people at Outside and at Men's Journal and uh, Popular Mechanics, or it was Popular Science, I think it was, who decide to get into this realm. And it's uh, wall-to-wall bullshit. Well, there is at least one person who still cares about it, and I'm talking to him right now. And anyone listening to this needs to go to Real Skiers, 
needs to subscribe to that email newsletter. It needs to listen to what Jackson's saying because I don't write about gear because I'll admit I'm not qualified, which is a big part of the reason why I'm talking to you today. I want to, I'm going to quote from your, one of your last newsletters you sent out this year to show listeners what I'm talking about more specifically when you're scrutinizing the folks who claim to know about gear today. So quote, most arms of mainstream media that choose to pose as ski experts no longer possess even a patina of credibility. To name two particularly odious, odious examples of advertising posing as editorial, Men's Journal published a top 10 most versatile skis of 2022 that was wall-to-wall bullshit, assembled purely to incite a direct sale from the supplier. Whatever quality might be shared by their 10 selections, quote, versatility, unquote, isn't even a remote possibility. I could vilify each selection for its exceptional inappropriateness, but instead I'll just mention that the, quote, writer, unquote, admitted that their 10th selection hadn't even been skied by whatever panel of nitwits they assembled to manufacture this fraud. The second slice of inanity that deserves your contempt is a ruse by popular mechanics titled The Eight Best Ski Boots for Shredding Any Slope. Despite a long prelude about boot selection and how they, quote, tested, unquote, intended to establish a tone of credibility, when they finally got around to picking boots, the editors responsible for this transparent hoax cobbled together an incoherent jumble with but one goal. Based on their nothing burger of a review, the reader is expected to buy his or her boots online, preferably on Amazon. It's hard to think of a worse disservice to the ski boot buying public than this inane exercise, end quote. Just absolutely phenomenal, Jackson. There's just not that much writing about skiing anymore that's that good, that insightful, that honest. How do we avoid bad advice other than by going to your site and subscribing to it and reading it religiously? Uh, Well, uh, online, you have to be careful because most of the people online are absolutely nothing more than posers the where you have to go to is the place that you are you think you're running away from which is a specialty ski shop why because they're going to charge me more because they're scandalous in their pricing that just shows you how out of touch you are every specialty ski shop in america that isn't in the second level plaza at telluride or some other microcosm which is pretty much not in part of the real world charges the same <laughs> the skis. You'll notice this year, if you follow this sort of minutia, that the manufacturer's suggested retail price, which is no longer even used by the manufacturer, <laughs> will merge with what has been the de facto manufacturer's price, which is what's called the minimum advertised price, which is, which is the price you get everywhere. The, so you're running away from the wrong thing and definitely for the wrong reasons. You are going to need that shop for one thing in particular that you will not find anywhere else. And those are your boots. And if you think you can buy boots online, you should seek therapy because you, your mind does not work. <laughs> There's no, you're not buying pumps. There is no more complicated piece of footwear devised by man than a and if you think that you can do this solo, ask yourself how last how well your last you know self-guided purchase went. <laughs> Plus, this is going to cost you a thousand dollars, and you need to be personalized. The biggest advantage of that retailer is that yes, they've got the boot inventory. That's maybe advantage one, 
an advantage too. They've got you, you got not a, not your voice, not your Zoom picture, not you waving your foot in front of a you know phone camera saying this is what it looks like, but actually all of you. When I'm fitting your boot, I watch you from the moment you come in the store. I watch your gait. I watch how you walk. I watch how you sit. I watch what your posture is. I watch how you stand again. I'm looking at you from as many different sides as I can all the time. Your happy little operator, Susie Twinkie Brain, at the you know calling place is going to always tell you that you're right <laughs> and tell you to just get three or four. It's okay. It's not, because even if you get the three or four and think you've gamed the system, because I'll just find out which one's best, ha, 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 send the other three back, you've still lost, because you probably were fishing under the wrong rock in the first place. Chances are that you will end up with a boot that is hopelessly inappropriate for you. So talk us through this process. When you go to a boot fitter, they... They do all sorts of things that you just can't do online. The molded footbeds, the sort of, I don't even know what it's called, the machine that they they sort of mold the boot around to you. And I, I have this great boot fitter. His name is Keith. I, I don't know his last name, but he's at Sun and Snow Sports in, uh, in Hunter, New York. And, you know, I, I have to say he... He didn't overcharge me <laughs> and, and I, I was expecting it to be much more. And, uh, and I went in there and I had some pretty old fitted, uh, insoles that I, that I'd gotten fitted a long time ago. And I said, you know, I, Keith, these are, these are pretty old. Do I need to redo them? He's like, look, I'm happy to take your money, but these are fine. Like these will still work for you. So that's the kind of thing, like everything that he did, everything that he told me, the way that he approached me, talked to me about it. It is not anything that I remotely would have ever been capable of doing on my own. So just talk about that, that process, what they do that the average idiot like me just can't. True. I mean, you're, you, you think you can substitute the expertise of 40 years of fitting boots? <laughs> I mean, it's hysterical. The only way you get good at this is because you have correctly fit hundreds of people. You... There's, there is no other magical way. There is a great program called MasterFit University that is the only, well, CDOS also does a pretty good show, but it's not quite on the scale that MasterFit does it, uh, that takes a traveling road show, not as many stops as one would like, but nonetheless, it's out there. And they do terrific training that teaches a methodology, not an ideology. There are some retailers out there who fit by ideology, and the results are predictably horrible. Because you can't just cram everybody through the same sieve and give everyone sort of this Hobson's choice of, you know, we pretend that we're going to fit all these other boots on you, but we're always going to put you in a Lang RS-130 with a foam-injected liner because that's what we do to everybody. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really abusive of the public's trust. Um, the whole point of going to someone like me is because I, I, I don't guess about what's going on in that boot. I don't, I, I ski it. I know it. And I know you. You can't substitute for that. There, there isn't a second best. What, what's your opinion on uh, custom insoles and, and how important that is to actually really fit the boot to your foot? It's paramount because it's the foundation. First of all, some of the off-the-shelf ones, shelf ones, if they match your foot pretty well, um, are, are okay. But the reason you need this is are several fold. One is whatever boot you're buying was built around a last. And that last wasn't designed around a pronated foot. It was designed, in some cases, around a slightly abducted foot, but in most cases, a, a neutral foot. 
which is where the insole is going to position your foot when you're standing on it. So for one thing, you're now going to map all the little micro contours of the ski boot a lot better than otherwise. Two, your arch it has the most proprioceptive end endings of any part of your body for obvious reasons. It's trying to keep us upright, something we don't make it very easy for the poor little devils to do. <laughs> they work when they're in contact. They don't work as well when they're not. It's not like they're dead. <laughs> it's not like they're inert. But it's not the same thing as when you've pushed a, a nice supportive surface up against him, and now that proprioceptive area on the arch of your foot lights up <laughs> like it suddenly got a jolt of energy and I can build around a supported foot it's very hard to build around an unsupported foot because it keeps changing its dynamic if you were to x-ray what the foot is doing inside a ski boot when you're skiing you would Hey, it is not sitting there like a little, like a foot of David, a Greek statue. <laughs> it looks more like a cat trying to get out of a shoebox. Wow. Um, <laughs> this is why things like trying to measure boot flexes, you know, realistically right. gets really problematic. Um, so the insole is part of the stabilization that's required. And it's the most important part because it connects with the most intimate part of your feedback system, which is your arch. And we can also, by doing that, help to shorten the foot a little bit, narrow it a little bit. We do a lot of micro things in the process of getting that insole fit. And micro differences in the ski boot are huge. A millimeter is a mile inside a ski boot. So how, how much of this, Jackson, is performance and how much is safety? They're indistinguishable. I'll tell you why. The ski boot is going to contribute very directly to your stance. It's going to essentially tell you how to stand. The best way to be safe as a skier is positional information. It's not necessarily your dim setting or anything else, but how are you standing on the boot? Is the, is the knee joint lightly flexed? Because that's when it's going to be strongest. And is it putting you in a position where your center of mass is over your feet or and permits you in a flex position to even move forward from that? So the, the boot is such a powerful predictor of stance and stance is an extremely powerful predictor of safety. All right. I have to ask you because I have the curse of bad circulation, which is a bad thing for a skier to have. So my feet are always cold. So I have the Hotronics. Sometimes I'll admit I throw in the disposable boot warmers. What's your opinion on keeping warm with ski boots on? Which of that stuff should we be avoiding? Well, you, you want to avoid stuff that takes up extra room in your boot. The, the, the value of a good boot fit is its intimacy with the shell. Uh, a shell, of course, is a very nasty sort of hostile plastic thing, which is why we need a buffer in there. But we don't want that buffer to become this big couch cushion because we want to maintain our sensitivity to the boot. It's our, it's our feed. It's our feedback device. So we don't want to overload it with a bunch of stuffing that will mute all of our sensations. Um, so packs that have contribute heat, I'm not a huge fan of. I think probably the slickest solution is the heated sock. Um, it takes a bit of nerve to charge well over $100 for socks, but <laughs> considering that you've got a $250 investment in any sort of 
heating device that's going in the boot that has a chance of, of working. Um, the socks don't look quite so bad. I don't know exactly what they are, and I'm 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 not. I don't actually use them myself because I want the sheerest thing I can put in mm-hmm. that boot. And right. um, warmth and comfort are all great, but they're overrated. <laughs> I want to be in the right position. And, and that way I know that I'm safe skiing at the speeds that at you know, approaching 72 years old, um, I probably most people would say, what are you, earth are you doing? I'm saying I'm skiing safely. It's what I'm doing. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's talk about skis. I, I think my biggest issue with trying to pick out skis is I just get overwhelmed by choice. There's so much there. Um, you know, I don't live in a ski town, so it's harder to demo. And then, you know, it, the only time I have time to do it is when I'm on vacation. And you can, like I was at Snowmass a few years back and I was able to swap them in and out between runs, but I don't necessarily always want to do that on vacation. So so what what's your recommendation for uh, someone who who kind of knows what they like to ski, maybe, maybe doesn't have a readily available demo place, but but how how should someone like that go about choosing skis? First, a, a honest self-assessment, which will be very hard for you men out there. <laughs> Watch you do this day in, day out during the year, and you're terrible at it. Uh, but, but that would be good uh, because then you would maybe have a more realistic look at length and also the sort of the style or type of ski you've got. But to Deal, first of all, with the dithering amount of choice. You're right. The choices are un- staggering. They're, they're literally mind-bending. So for one thing, with, with our methodology at Real Skiers, the first thing we do is say, okay, the world's actually divided into seven columns. Six of them don't need to concern you. So let's first of all focus on the, we're going to go find the column you belong in. Some are going to be self-exclusionary right from the start. Are you a racer? No, good. Well, that, there goes that column. <laughs> right. You need an independent powder-only powder ski for you know because you're going to be at Western Resorts a lot. No, good. There you go. That's done with that. <laughs> now we're mm-hmm. now we're narrow things down. Um, and when you narrow things down, you're most likely going to end up in a category that I would call All Mountain East, which are going to be a narrower bundle, and All Mountain West, which is a slightly wider bundle. Um, but both of them should be literally skiable in any condition. The wider bundle are going to favor soft snow and off-trail conditions simply because they're wider. The wider bundle of all-mountain skis, what I call all-mountain west, are going to favor off-trail conditions, but they're still not so wide that you that they feel cumbersome. You don't notice the width. It doesn't call attention to itself yet, biomechanically or mentally. Um, but the narrower bundle, what we call All Mountain East, is where most people should look, particularly women, but men as well, because you retain a better level of carving capability on the hard snow, which, let's face it, that's where you're going to be spending most of your time. And it's not worth compromising your ability, your safety, your, you know, your enjoyment by getting on a ski that's too wide, and it is common to see people coached into getting a ski too wide, and my my trying to coach people in the back into getting something narrower, because they'll they'll be safer and they'll be it'll actually ski better for them on most of the days that they go skiing. Mm-hmm. What do you think most people should be looking at underfoot? No, something between. I think the all mountain east boundaries are eighty five to ninety four uh, underfoot, and 
there are some great skis all along that range. There's a great 80, Kendo 88 is a, a Brahma 88, absolutely brilliant. The Enforcer 94 from Nordica. It's just an intuitive ski. It seems to be wired into where you're looking. <laughs> you don't have to worry about any kind of technique. Uh, so I think that, that that's the most fail-safe bundle. Um, and if you look at my scores, just, you know, if you're picking one of the top four skis in either power or finesse, those are all going to be really good skis, better than whatever you've got now. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, how important is demoing? It's, it's, it's important psychologically. It's not that important otherwise. And I'll tell you why. Most people are terrible at it. They, okay. they don't do it the right way in the first place. They ski one ski on one day at Whistler, and then they ski the next time they go out and demo it's at Breckenridge and they take out a different ski they have no consistency from day to day they that doesn't mean they won't quote unquote like something more than they like a day other but was it really due to its length was it due to its baseline was it due to its width was it due to the fact that it was a sunny day and they could see better uh <laughs> they're just not good enough at winnowing out all the variables and it's not that easy to do and I'm not trying to diminish people's ability to ski I'm trying to diminish their ability to ski test because they're not the same thing. Um, and most people also, I never see a skier executing a run that I would say is a disciplined effort at testing a ski. So, so what would you suggest? So I'll, I'll, the last time I did this, as I mentioned, I was a snowmass. So I would, uh, you know, get my skis. I take the six pack up and then go ski the runs there. Looker's right. And I, I skied the same like five or six runs and I go, you know, take the, take the skis back to the shop and I'd go ski the same five or six runs, take them back to the shop, you know, try to ski like some bumps, some grooms, some, some different pitches. Should we be doing something like that? Or can you recommend a better process? Well, certainly that's a way of going about it. Um, the easiest way to read a ski is to be on terrain that doesn't require your attention. So rather than just say, oh, I better go ski steeps, the first thing I want you to do is ski something that is literally mindless for you, a, a, a blue square run anywhere USA, because I want you to be focusing on your feet, your posture, making sure that you're, the first thing you have to make sure is, is the eval, how's the evaluator doing today? <laughs> so, um, and if you're not used to this, you better just plan on having one run that you're just going to throw away. You're just going to go out and you're just going to make turns or whatever and just going to shake the cobwebs off uh, because you're really probably not ready to evaluate much of anything. Um, and then once you are once you say, okay, I've got the shot, I'm, I'm, I'm here, <laughs> I'm skiing as well as I know how to ski, I think that's okay. Now you get still stay in that groomed run and start changing everything else that's a variable, turn radius, speed. Again, don't, don't change your terrain yet, but find out basics about the ski and basic terrain that allow your mind to not worry about how terrible a bump skier you are, for example. <laughs> if, if you're not a really good bump skier, don't test skis and bumps. <laughs> you're not going to like very many of them, except for the short yeah. ones. <laughs> uh, so be realistic about where you ski and what your expectations are. So I feel like a symptom of social media and these big Facebook groups we have now is everyone feels like they have to have a quiver, right? They have to have like four or five skis. And, you know, I, I, I can't imagine most people are skiing more than 20, 30 days a year. Uh, what, what's your opinion of the quiver? Is this just, 
you know, the success of marketing and, and, and peer pressure, or, or is this something that a casual skier should consider? It's my job to sell as many skis to people as I can. <laughs> so full disclosure, of course, you should have a lot of skis. Imagine how many skis I've got. But what do I actually do? I take the, I take, there's a definitely an adopt a ski program going on here. I, I adopt a ski for the year, basically. And that is going to be my baseline. And that's my go back to that to check to see how, how am I doing and how's the ski skiing. And also so I can just go to Snowbird and be a skier. Just be who am I going to go just be a skier on? So even though I have a lot of skis, you might say almost a fantastical number, that's not the reality of what I ski. And the other ski that I would have skied, the alternative ski, I never got on all year because the conditions were never right for a 111 underfoot. Right. So I, my regular runner this year was a Mantra M6, and a 90, 96 underfoot. And the reason I chose that ski for my ski the, uh, for to be my baseline is I can make any turn shape I wanted in any condition. I can go full throttle into a narrow gut and cut that narrow gut into five little teeny pieces and then come firing out the other end. And I feel like I've had to change nothing except my, my own body posture. Uh, so, and then the, 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 the lonely powder skis that never got to see snow uh, with a pair of uh, core 111s from head. Um, but I didn't, and aside from my hard snow ski, which is a Kessley uh, MX-83, which is when I've, you know, there's no chance of being anything else, um, but it's not that versatile a ski and it's not that representative of what most people are buying. Uh, uh, M6 is certainly more representative of what people buy. Uh, and I also feel it's important that I'm not skiing something that's out on the fringes. I should be skiing something that mainstream, that skiers ski. I shouldn't be, you know, oh, what's on Jackson? The most exotic shit out there? That's, uh, <laughs> I want to show you that anybody can go get a, you can get a production made ski and with the right technician. And, and again, that ski shop relationship, you don't have a ski shop relationship. You're probably not even going to know who the head ski tech is, but you want to know him or her. Because they're the ones that are going to make that ski shine. How a ski is finished makes such a difference. And that's another problem with your demo experience. What skis are you going on? What condition are those skis really in? And the shops, of course, they know they're supposed to be kept in good condition. But are they? And are they in the condition that you would want the ski in? I guarantee you they won't have the grind on them that I would want to have on them. I mean, it's just... You're not, you're not looking through a clear image. You're looking through a distorted pane through a, a demo, plus you're on a demo binding, which definitely <laughs> how things happen underfoot. Some of them are so stacked. Some of them have re reverse ramp angle on them. It's like, holy moly. Um, so again, variables, variables, variables. It, uh, though just having that demo binding under there can change your impression of the ski. Uh, how are you going to know that? How are you going to separate the demo binding sensation from the what would be a sensation on a retail binding? Good luck. <laughs> so, so so let's talk about bindings how sh i think for most skiers bindings are an afterthought how should we go about selecting the appropriate binding for our skis it's become so much more complicated i spent my beginnings of my professional career create helping to draft standards so that this wouldn't be an important question you could put any boot in any binding and everything would work just as it was designed to then mm -hmm. along came backcountry, <laughs> mm. and then along came grip walk, um, and now we have a mess of different 
influences that can really screw things up. So I'd say may sound stupid to say so, but for the first, first of all, make sure you're buying an Alpine binding meant for Alpine skiing. Do not buy a backcountry binding on the assumption that someday in some magical world that you've yet to live in, you're going to go hiking and you're going to need this feature. <laughs> Bindings made for climbing are made for climbing. They are not made for downhill skiing. They, can, they are possible to go downhill skiing in. But you can destroy a backcountry binding by taking it to the resort and skiing in it. And you're just skiing. Oh, I'm just skiing along. What am I doing to it? You're using it. <laughs> and if you understood binding energy curves, you would understand that an energy curve is telling you how much energy the binding can absorb. The energy curve of a regular alpine binding looks sort of like a big box. The energy curve of a backcountry binding looks like a garter snake that's been run over by a truck. <laughs> it's very flat and uneven and squiggly. They can't absorb the energy of alpine skiing, and you will you will damage the binding. It may not be physically visible to you, but you are weakening a device that was never intended for the forces which you are applying to it. So don't get coached into buying some sort of hybrid binding, which will cost you more than a car <laughs> to get something that you will not need. And is there a problem using it inbounds? Not in all cases, but in most, there's, yep, you bet there are. So for the sake of everybody, stay in your lane. <laughs> if you're an alpine skier, get an alpine binding. It should have its own you know, group of bindings displayed by it. And do I have prejudices within that world? Yes, I do. And they're somewhat based to minutia. But um, I think that you know, basically if you're buying one of the major brands, you know, Solomon slash Atomic, uh, Marker, Look, or Tirolia, those bindings are tested. They work well, uh, properly maintained. They will function properly. Um, if you think you have potential knee injury, you think you're either need to protect them because you've already wrecked them a lot or you because you never want to wreck them at all, and that's a focus of yours, um, Tirolia makes a perfectly good alpine binding that has a vertical release capability of the toe piece and look probably has the most sophisticated, um, vertical release mechanism built into almost all their toes. Um, that is uh, wonderful because if you, particularly for women, because their lower center of mass prejudices, the vulnerability of the knee joint in the first place. Um, I, I like to have vertical release capability in their toe pieces. Do I use them in all of mine? No. Uh, because I, I I know that I, I know posturally not to get in a position where I'm going to hurt my knee, so I need the binding to figure that out because I've already got that part figured out. What I wanted to do is handle all the other shocks involved in skiing and to be uh, and to, to not be fussy about being used in the snow. You know, sometimes it's hard to get into and blah blah blah. So anyway, I I think that if you're buying from one of the major brands, you're buying a properly industrialized product. Um, by that I mean you wouldn't want to buy an artisanal toaster. Uh, it would, it, first of all, it would cover your entire counter and have wires everywhere because you know, because Bob made it out of you know an old shoebox or whatever. Um, you don't want to bind an artisanally made binding. Bindings need to be made in the millions to be made well, not in the tens. So avoid the brands you've never heard of. If you've never heard of them, <laughs> keep walking. 
How about Dan? I, I feel like there's uh, like a, you know, a, a, a chest thumping contest going on on social media sometimes around who can set their DIN the highest. How should we be setting our DIN? Well, if it's to set them the highest, you're going to get exactly what you deserve. The, <laughs> the DIN standards were designed based upon the known breaking strength of the tibia, either in twist or in forward lean. No one was guessing. It's very, very scientific and based upon thousands and thousands and thousands of incidents, injuries, you know, knowledge about what breaks a tibia and what does not. It does not, it is not designed to protect anything else, but it, it by some sort of implication, it, it, it can, depending on where the force is coming from and the loads involved and that sort of detail stuff. If you feel you, you may need a little extra at the heel in some instances because the heel piece is is a is not quite as sophisticated a device as the toe um, and it deals with much higher forces they're roughly four times greater than the forces at the toe so your oh, wow. your six at the heel is actually a 24 if it were on the wow. toe um, but the, if as you might imagine if you can travel with your mind with me here Stuart of the boot pressing forward into the tongue if that tongue is really stiff the heel's going to come up sooner than if that tongue is really soft so if you're skiing a really a 140 flex boot, you might want to put your din, if you're riding an eight at the toe, you might put your din at the heel at nine, at least just to give you a little more retention. Because if you come, generally speaking, if you come out at the heel, it's because the whole, your whole body mass is going forward. It's not just like your heel's lifting up. Right. <laughs> just your hips are heading somewhere else. Uh, you more or less get torn out of the heel, whereas the binding is a much more, the toe is a much more subtle and, and responsive device. Um, so if you're, if, I, I know there's particular brands, and I don't want to perjure myself or get myself in any kind of trouble by saying there's more likely to happen with this brand than another, but I think it probably is more likely to happen with certain certain binding models than with others because they're more, they don't have as much elastic range. They function more as a punctual release system rather than a more elastic system. And therefore, in that more punctual release system, uh, you find that you, you, you escape too easily, so you turn up the static setting. And of course, if you don't want it to happen again for sure, you turn it up a lot. Mm-hmm. That's just ignoring all the science, all the biomechanics, it's like being in the, in the pandemic world we were just in. Well, I don't, I don't feel like taking getting a shot. Well, Jesus, too bad. It's like grow up. I mean, something is. If that's happening, something is, and you're not racing at ninety miles an hour. The the pure race world is a different world, and and nobody should take anything applied in the pure race world. Uh, I mean, at the highest level of racing, and try to translate it to help to alpine regular skiing. Bad idea. If otherwise you're coming out of any binding at when even though you're set at eight, either you're trying to do some tricks, which is possible. You can twist right out of a toe piece on a takeoff because you know timing and lighting. You twist a little early, and oops, no, no more skis. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're straight going straight downhill and doing normal skiing maneuvers, and you can't stay in, let's say an eight as a guy of a normal weight. Your skiing sucks. Something you're not. There's something you're not. There's something you're doing wrong, uh, because you should be able to ski comfortably at a much lower setting, unless you're just always at absolute rocket speed. Because when you blow up, you'll blow, blow up out of everything anyway, uh, right? Uh, and therefore, you can maybe rationalize it. But I would suggest that if you're skiing that fast, 
I hope you're doing it early in the morning and getting that out of your system quick because it's unsafe <laughs> to do that when there's other people on the mountain. So let's talk about binding maintenance here a little bit. And this is a personal one for me. I broke my tib fib about three months ago, skiing up at Black Mountain of Maine. And uh, what happened was I was coming down a, you know, an open run. It wasn't groomed, but it wasn't super bumpy either. Uh, my ski came around, got caught in some slushy stuff. My body ended up going the other way. Binding did not release, broke the tib fib. Uh, here I am three months later on the couch still. Um, and I specifically remember this moment of I, I took all my skis up and I, I live in New York City, but I get my skis tuned up in White Plains at uh, Pedigree Ski Shop just because it's easier with the car to have a parking lot and everything else than to take them into Manhattan. So I, I got out the door. I had the kids with me or something and I was just distracted. I forgot my boots. So I drop off my skis and um, I say, OK, I'll just bring the boots back when I pick them up. And of course, I forgot to bring the boots back when I, when I picked them up. And, and I was like, oh, God, I don't want to go all the way back up to White Plains. I was like, screw it. I'll just take them. Um, you know, I never had a binding problem before. So I take them and put them in the van and just kind of forget about it. And the, the skis I was using that day are not my daily skis. They were some 12-year-old skis that I had. They, I didn't really use them anymore, but I figured I'll get them tuned up for backups. Sure enough, blew an edge on my dailies and pulled these ones out of the roof box and uh, ended up breaking my leg in two places, which really was not a whole lot of fun. So uh, I, I'm sure that you can identify many, many mistakes that I made there. Um, I'm, I'm pretty aware of many mistakes that I will not be repeating, but how should we be thinking about um, binding maintenance? And I guess just ski maintenance in general, how often should we be getting our stuff tuned and checked? Well, what I suspect you suffered from because it, is, it exactly follows a pattern that we're seeing more and more of, unfortunately, is a replication of the exactly the injury patterns that we were seeing in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s uh, prior to binding and boot standardization. Um, because you, you probably put an incompatible boot sole into that binding, which it then, you know, it's, it's an incompatible component in the system. And no amount of maintenance on that binding would have, would have overcome or overridden the fundamental incompatibility of the boot and binding. So I would say, if, first of all, because in the modern age we now have hiking, we have several different varieties of hikey hikey bindings, which have a lot of tread in them and a little bitty dim patch <laughs> under the foot. Um, these um, don't always work with older bindings, particularly if those older bindings had no toe height adjustment. And you tend to take a grip walk sole, for example, which in other, in other ways mimics the Alpine standards that we helped draft back in the 70s the old 78-80 norm. That change in toe height is also involves a material change and it can jam uh, the toe with a soft gummy material now under it to help you get across the parking lot, which I understand, but that get across the parking lot comes at a price. <laughs> and the, one of the prices is, is in heightened vigilance. You have to make sure the binding you're going in for has been set high enough to accommodate the extra elevation of a grip walk sole. Um, generally speaking, a binding is a, is a, if it's, if it's just treated well and by well, meaning don't put it in the wood shop where you're just going to be spraying sawdust all over it. I mean, they don't like being dunked in garbage and junk. They like to be clean and don't clean them with solvents because there's, there's internal lubricants that are really important and we don't want to have solvents all over them. So you clean them with just water, but you shouldn't be getting them so filthy that water won't clean them. Um, and your interfere boot sole biggest problem with have is 
you walk across the parking lot and for some reason we have very gaudy resorts that can't be bothered to pave anything so their parking lots are just harass and by the time you get to your if, if you don't walk across a lot of snow to, to you know naturally sort of cleanse the soul you can end up all kinds of crap that's either embedded in a little bit of tread in your soul or is just literally been, been forced into the plastic and boy is that really no good so your boot soul has really got to be clean when it goes into the binding. And if you're at an area where you're covering a lot of tr- ground with your ski boots on, because it's like North Star and designed by nobody who thought about it <laughs> before <laughs> they built it, um, you get cat tracks, get something that just protects the sole. For, for the, that's, that's not a big carrier or anything like that. Cat tracks can fold up and fit in your pocket. Um, and I'm, I'm, I make no money from anything I sell. <laughs> I'm getting a commission from my in- interesting little footnote. You have, remember the um, referee in the great game where the Giants upset the Patriots, the undefeated Patriots, and the the ball pinned against the helmet. Um, uh, yeah. the, and the, the the back judge, who actually was the head referee in that game, uh, was the one who didn't call um, El- uh, Manning for being in the grasp. Allowing him to get out of that grasp and then throwing the pass that continued the run to upsetting the deal. That guy, Mike Carey, is the that, that coach name. I feel like the old radio announcer, Paul Howard. <laughs> and that man was uh, um, Michael Carey, who is a part owner of Cirrus, who makes cat tracks and a lot of other stuff. Uh, but he was also the, the head um, referee in that game, uh, Michael Carey. At any rate, um, uh what was my point i was just talking about how 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 should we be taking care of our bindings and how often should we get our stuff once a year, once a, once a year. take them into the beginning of the year you really want the, you want the bases checked your bases are going to be dry unless you really good care of them at the end of last year the difference between a, ba- a tuned base and an untuned base is night and day and at the cost of lift tickets and everything else today trying to save a buck by not tuning your skis or in your case not getting your bindings inspected it's just nuts. Skiing's expensive. Well, I, I didn't even save any money because they, that was part of the tune. <laughs> that, that was the sad part about it was was it was just me being an idiot. So yeah, how 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 often should we tune our gears in se- our skis in season? Let's break tuning down into waxing and everything else um, because waxing you can't do too much. It, the skis are, are waxaholics. The more you give them, the more they want, um, and. I would say if you're skiing on highly abrasive artificial snow, which we almost all are, on, it, 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 it doesn't last very long. Um, and for the most part, what you're just losing is some glide properties. But eventually, the poor little things actually start to dehydrate. Um, they, they literally deoxidize. They, they, they does plastic versions of rusting. Um, so... I'm different because I'm in the business and I've got a technician who takes care of me and all shop I can use. So I can't really apply my rules to everyone else. But I would say at least every five times you ski, get them waxed. It doesn't have to be a fancy wax. You don't have to give them some sort of infrared ultra super deal. I would do that at the beginning of the year. I would use a treatment that might get a little more material into the ski than a quick pass over a, a buffing wheel will do. But the pass over the buffing wheel is not to be dismissed. Anything is better than nothing when it comes to, to waxing. So even if it's a five bucks hot wax, as long as there's something that's buffing it on the surface so it's getting into the ski, that's that's money well spent. The The rest of it, unless you damage the edge, don't, you don't have to fool around with it very often. The, this, 
The side edge, which will be at two, in some cases, three degrees on your recreational skis, not more than three degrees. And don't try to go more than three degrees because you won't be able to maintain it. So forget it. Mm. <laughs> so um, how about you need a one degree base on the bevel because we do a lot of foot swiveling and skiing. And, and whether we think of that technical or not technical, it's part of the sport. So you don't want to ski that easily catches an edge at the slightest hint and it goes sideways. So put a one degree base bevel on the bottom and two or three on the side and that side edge can be freshened and, and without you know significantly affecting the lifetime of the ski unless you're planning to keep them for 50 years or whatever but no hopefully that's not the case um <laughs> and i would if, if you're skiing on really really hard snow you're going to want to freshen that side edge you know frequently every two or three days because you'll you'll notice when it's duller you, you don't have, it's going to control over where you're going next uh, <laughs> but not all can you know we're pretty good nationwide at tilling slopes in this country we pretty do a pretty good job for the most part of of flattening out the terrain so that you don't need a, a, a perfect edge um, but i will tell you that it's it's not just the edge angle it's the edge finish so when you're, if you're vetting your technician at your ski shop and sort of saying, how are you going to, what are you going to do? Make sure that part of their process is polishing the edge when you're done. Cause that polish is what really, it's the difference between good and great. It's the difference between a ski, the car that handles well and a car, car that handles like, oh my God. <laughs> um, it takes or moves that last little bit of friction from the one part of the ski that has the most friction against the snow, which is the edge. And how much and how how important is the gear that the shop uses? I I was I usually don't pay much attention to these things, but I was up at Wachusett and I was skiing with Jeff Crowley, the president up there, and he took me in the shop. He's like, Oh, we'll put your skis in this Montana machine. I'm like, All right. And I watched him go through and it oh my God, I I it was like I was driving a Ferrari to extend your metaphor. It was amazing. So so how much attention do you pay to to what the shop uses as far as technology goes? I would be very curious about what technology is. Uh, Montana, Wintersteiger, um, Reichman probably are all the other, probably the top um, base tuning equipment. Your, your shop is going to marry itself to one of those brands. Um, for consistency's sake, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll stick with those brands. Uh, the machines are unbelievable, as you've seen. Um, they can produce things that you, I don't care how clever you are, you can't hold a file with the accuracy that these laser-guided machines can finish your end. And, mm -hmm. and don't get too lost in the details. Don't say, oh, I'm going to have a 1.5 up here in the forebody for, you know, 20 centimeters, and then I'm going to go to a 1.75. It's like, oh, sweet mother of pearl. <laughs> stop. <laughs> stop. Just don't, don't worry about that. That's just... One degree on the base, one and a half. If you want to get fussy and look at look what we can do, okay, get fussy and do that. And but don't overcomplicate it because there's no need to. And the more you complicate it, the more trouble you're going to have with maintenance. So no matter how long, how well we maintain things, this is gear and it has a lifespan. And I think since skis are quite expensive, people have a tendency to want to get as much life as possible out of them. Is there a certain number of days or or years, or, or, or how should we think about the lifespan of our boots and skis and when it's time to replace? Is it performance, or is it age, or is it both? It's both, and they don't all age quite at the same rate. Um, the skis can last, physically last a long, long time. 
The characteristics that they'll lose are resiliency, rebound, the ability. Most rebound is coming from a glass layer somewhere in the ski and glass eventually breaks down and you'll lose that resilience. But you may still be in love with it. Maybe the rebound characteristic wasn't what you liked about the ski in the first place. So big deal, Lucille, if you keep it you know, well-maintained, the ski itself will, re- will retain some level of skiability for a long time. But the binding may not stay in indemnity and the binding can also be problematic. I, I, I would be very reluctant to ski on a ski with a 10-year-old binding on it just because everything ages whether we like it or not well i haven't used it much well so what it's still been sitting in the closet aging plastics and metal things like that don't they don't just sit there and remain in some sort of perfectly native state they they devolve over time um but the ski itself will remain in one piece as long as the binding has been kept maintained and properly lubricated over time it also will function probably past its its expiration date uh, which will be determined by an insur- a faceless insurance company and not by anybody. <laughs> um, that, so that's the, that's the real limitation on your ski. is isn't going to be in the ski. It's going to be in the binding in terms of its aging. The boot is the one that is a bigger problem. And the reason it's a bigger problem is people regard boot fittings roughly on a par with dental surgery. They really don't want it. <laughs> uh, it's expensive. Okay. Uh, they're fearful that they won't get it right, even though what they're in right now hurts them every single day. Uh, they still think that's better than the unknown boot that I haven't gotten yet. It's gonna. I know, right. I know it's just going to hurt me more. Because you know why? Because look how much these hurt me. <laughs> and by this sort of tortured logic, people end up staying in their boots much, much too long. Boots lose their special property is also resilience, but people don't know that. They don't know that's what they're buying. That's that's the freshness in the box is fresh plastic is good plastic and it never gets better. It does get older and gets more brittle and loses performance characteristics. And those plastics are sensitive to humidity and to ultraviolet, uh, where if you're living at altitude, you're damaging your boots faster. You can, nothing you can do about it. You can't throw a, you know, a, a you know, like the aluminum foil to keep the aliens away. You can't, you can't just put aluminum foil or something around the boots to keep them from aging. It's just going to happen. Uh, I would say a, um, a boot that is properly treated and um, it probably has 150 days in it, but the first 100 are going to be its best days. Okay. The, the next 50 will be skiable. And as long as things aren't noticeably breaking down, in other words, buckles are literally broken or off the boots, or I've literally already replaced all the buckles once. <laughs> There's a little hint right there that something's going on. Then uh, your liner will devolve. And the next question will be, should I get a new liner then? No. Because your liner will be young, but what really matters in the boot is the shell, and it's going to still be an old, crotchety piece of junk that you really haven't you really haven't solved your liner the shell's problems at all <laughs> by getting it a new liner. You've made yourself comfortable for a while, but in a you've put a brand new engine in it in a terrible old body that's showing signs of rust on it. You still want to put a new engine in it? Uh, why don't you get a new one? What, what you probably, as your experience can show, though, you might be able to save your insole. Your ins, insoles can live forever because they're inside the boot. This this takes me to Snowbird Secrets because you you have this really interesting chapter in there, and you talk about respect for the mountain, and and how Scott Schmidt, an amazing accomplished free skier, 
had, at least at the time, never been injured. I'm not sure if that was still the case because this book was written 10 years ago. And the skeptic in me reads something like that and I want to roll my eyes. But then I start thinking about it. And I'm like, was Black Mountain of Maine punishing me for being an arrogant moron and skiing on worn out skis and not checking my bindings? You know, was the mountain trying to teach me a lesson, Jackson, for being an idiot? I think there is more truth to that than we might like to believe. But the more you really understand the truth about science, the more you realize that that already defies your ability to believe anything. So it's possible. I do think that if you want to get the most out of skiing, you have to be present. And to be present, you've got to silence a lot of baggage that we tend to carry around with us. We have to stop nattering to ourselves. We have to silence our little helpful inner coach who's always trying to tell us how to do stuff. Um, we have to be aware of our surroundings. We have to be keenly aware of them. So not, not just see them and hear them, but almost feel them. And if you were going to ski in high-risk terrain and ski it in a fashion that aggravates that risk, ask for the mountain's permission to go. What what'll it, what'll it hurt you? Ask for the mountain's permission to go. Um, the, the mountain is there. It is a real presence. It is a grab. You're stepping into a gravity field that's created by this enormous entity, which, in the case of Snowbird, is swirling through the universe at what forty-seven thousand miles an hour, um, and it is loaded with minerals that have electromagnetic properties. Don't tell me that mountain isn't sending some sort of force out into the world. How we choose to characterize it, how we choose to acknowledge it or not acknowledge it is very much up to us. But you'll never appreciate the mountain if you keep bringing your noise to it. So, so let's back up here for a second. What is just talk about Snowbird Secrets and then we'll get into a little more specifics about it. Just give the listeners a really brief overview of what the book is about and why you wrote it. The book consists of 22 meditations. You can consider them like pearls on a necklace in that we don't really care what order you treat them in. There is a first chapter about orientation, which is kind of helpful to be the first chapter. But I would say 2 through 22 um, are interchangeable. And each one is like a pearl, totally self-contained. So you don't have to read chapter one in order to understand chapter two or anything like that. So they're they're literally meant to be just consumed one at a time. You can try to eat them all at once if you want to, but you don't need to. Um, and they were created out of the vision of my writing partner, Guru Dave Powers. I say writing partner, but it's a little inaccurate because Guru Dave actually didn't write a single word. He but he channeled, he, he was the one, the storyteller, if you will. And I was the one trying to interpret the storyteller's message. And uh, so we take, everything begins with an idea. So each chapter is about an idea. And we explore that idea both within the ski world and without. Um, one of the goals for myself as a writer that I share with the reader in the introduction was to try in this book to communicate on three levels simultaneously with the reader, which, by the way, is something I culled from the medieval Arabic philosopher Averroes, who was a medieval Aristotelian. And he said that the, a good writing 
which should communicate on the um, physical and the uh, intellectual and the spiritual. So on the physical, I want the actual sound of the language, the, 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 the noise, the vibrations of the words to have their own sensuality, to have their own feeling of, of place, to try to, in some cases, actually mimic the sounds of a ski on snow just through writing sentences. The second level is the intellectual, try to take you into each, each idea. And then the third level is the spiritual. What is the point of all of this? Every one of these meditations has a point. It has a message. It has a, a spiritual guidance suggestion. Well, it's not delivered in a norm, you know, an ending that sort of says, by the way, this is, <laughs> here's your one takeaway. Because that would have disrupted, I think, the holistic nature of each, of each pearl. But it's imbued, the spiritual nature of the, of the answer, if you will, that the chapter contains is, is part of its, of its wholeness. Um, it was incredible to write. I sat right where I'm sitting right now, but the difference was I was literally in a pillar of fire. I mean, the energy flowing through me was, it was like shaking the furniture and, uh, I would write each, each chapter got written roughly in an afternoon, um, of quite a bit of incubation beforehand and, and being ready and, and being humble and sort of trying to attitudinally focus myself correctly and I would start writing a chapter, and within a few keystrokes, the, I call them the angels because we have no, so few metaphors to describe this experience, would just come down. And, and first of all, they would try to re always reassure me, say, it's okay. <laughs> we were, we yeah. chose you because you showed up. So thanks for showing up. <laughs> Here's today's message, you know. And, and I would literally channel their energy into the written word. And by the time I would be done with any given chapter, I would be drenched in sweat and tears. It would be like mm. I'd gone through some sort of marine training. I've never gone to marine training camp, and I'm not asking to. But <laughs> I imagine that the physical strain would be something like be as uh, drained as I would be after writing each of these things. And never changed a word afterwards. So, um, yeah, it's special. It, well, it's, it's beautifully written, Jackson, and it really evokes snowbird and, and and made me think about snowbird in a totally different way because i've skied snowbird a fair amount and I, I i knew it well enough to understand the pieces you were talking about of the mountain and i i know enough about it to know that it's amazing and that i wish i lived there <laughs> but but what makes snowbird so special it's the energy field that you step into, the gravity stream there is right from the start is running really hot. <laughs> okay. And you, if you were going to treat that mountain with proper respect, you got to stay focused. Uh, talk about a place where you should be humble. <laughs> um, it's, all mountains have a power to them, and I don't want to minimize the charm and the enjoyment of small mountains like Mount Rose, which I've already confessed to really being a fan of. But you can't experience the G-forces on little mountains that you can on big ones because you just can't get to that speed and then maintain it. And the flow of Snowbird, the, the, main, the maintenance of a, for recreational skiing, rather high-speed skiing, um, is phenomenal. And the aerial playground, oh my God, to have a 20-year-old back again. Oh my Lord. <laughs> Everything's a launch pad there. So right. it's uh, it's constantly challenging. It, it, to me, it's 
a place of automatic renewal. I may not feel like I'm my back's that great or that I'm skiing that well, or maybe I'm not sleeping well or whatever. But when I got out of bed in Little Cottonwood Canyon and then get down in the plaza for early trams, it's like I just took a drink a gallon of Geritol. Sorry, generation. <laughs> that was a energy drink, I should say, monster energy. Because <laughs> uh, it's just, it renews me in a way that it's, it is mystical, but it, it makes me stronger to be there. And I certainly feel better I mean, about everything. I come very lovey. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you really, you really tell the story of Snowbird in, in a way that redefines the way that I thought about it. Are there other mountains that you would put in this class? I, I you know, certainly I've, I've, I've had that same like enlightened spiritual sort of experience right next door at Alta. What, what do you think about Alta and, and, and what other mountains, like, do you have a top five of sort of mountains where you can have this, this really great recreational ski experience that, that sort of takes you almost to another plane? I think there are, I, I remembered this from your notes and I remember, remember sort of stopping and saying, hmm, good question. <laughs> I'd have to say Jackson Hole, Jackson Hole, you better pay attention there and be respectful. And, and the more you sort of accept the, that the mountain is, uh, has already won. You're not going to beat this right. mountain. Uh, <laughs> it's an absolute, it, it, you can, you can open up, it can open you up spiritually. I think black comb, uh, is another one. Uh, again, these are mountains with long verticals. You can be really, some have more tabletop in the middle, but the long vertical, um, Val d'Isère goes on forever. I mean, you could, you could link Val d'Isère to Zermatt with a, with a Crayola and never have to lift, yeah. drift it off the map. Um, but Val d'Isère itself, for one thing, you're in France. I speak fluent French, yeah. so yeah, okay. it's an advantage. Um, yeah. I've never skied the Dolomites, but I imagine if I had, they would be on this list. Um, and Kitzbühel, um, mm-hmm. you know, we always think of it as the honey. Well, the honey's on the lower mountain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a whole other upper right. mountain. <laughs> Kitzbühel, and it seems to go on forever. And it's, it just invites speed to the point where be careful because it's so inviting. You could just launch one of these rollers and whoa, mistake. <laughs> <laughs> you suddenly you start rolling down the windows and nothing's changing. <laughs> definitely. Uh, there's definitely an immersive experience available in Europe in any number of places. Verbier, but Verbier is more chopped up. I look for mountains that have the ability to really ski literally top to bottom. Uh, I guess you'd say Chamonix, but Chamonix seems to vary between, you know, life-threatening <laughs> and not necessarily pleasant, but life-threatening yeah. and long, but not necessarily thrilling. The nice thing about uh, Snowbird is it's, it's you know, nowhere near as, as long a vertical, of course, as the Vallée Blanche, but the 3,000 vertical that they've got all mean business. Is that what puts it over Alta? You just don't get the vertical next door? You don't get the vertical and you just can't run laps as fast. And and the, very much analogous to what we have between Alpine Meadows and Squaw in, in my neck of the woods here and, and in Little Cottonwood Canyon, the lift system at Snowbird takes you exactly where you want to be. You, you get off right. the lift and you're, you are there. No more climbing necessary. By whatever fiendish design, the lifts at Alta take you exactly where you don't want to be. And then you have to go. <laughs> Oh, climb. <laughs> That's right. Get to where you do want to be. And then the, you run out of, 
there's some, listen, I love Greeley Hill. It's fabulous, but it's short. And when Greeley Hill's over, you got a kind of a pain in the ass perverse and, you know, you get the rope toe in the bottom. You know, it's, yeah. it's not all. And I love Wildcat. I mean, there's parts of, of Alta that are just kick ass. Um, and don't, I mean, I fell in love with Alta before I even knew anything about Snowbird. But um, for one thing, Snowbird has a functioning marketing department that I can relate to over the years. Whereas Alta, <laughs> I love Connie, but I don't know if she ever answers the phone even. I don't, I'm right. sure you do, Connie, but not as easy as does uh, getting in touch with Mr. Fields. So it's just become a better base of operation. And then now with the people I stay with when I'm there, it's just Snowbird is much easier access than, than Alta. Alta is not a big pain, but it's not as easy as Snowbird going down to the plaza. The only other one I'm curious about from this point of view in the U.S. is Taos. What do you think about Taos? Ah, it's great. Uh, it's got terrific vertical to it. Um, I have literally seen the car next to me come in the parking lot, look up at Al's run out of a Taos, <laughs> back in the car and drive away. It's going, right. this, is, this place will kill me. Uh, <laughs> and it's old school. I, I, I think they allow snowboarding now. I don't know how that do. affects yeah. Um the place it didn't it was not a place particularly laid out well for snowboarding kind of more yeah. hikers dream type of deal um but it's impossible not to love the charm of taos it, it, it's a little other world you, you have to travel a long way normally to get there so it, it adds to the sort of the otherworldly quality of it and it's it's like a little tiny slice of europe stuck in the corner of colorado Oh, in Colorado here. You know, I'm sorry, Taos. I just moved you into Colorado. <laughs> trying to get you away from the fires. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a great, it's it's a terrific place. But again, it's kind of broken up. And you have the strange experience of where the steepest skiing in the mountain is actually on the lower mountain, which is a little odd. So, you know, I do want to talk about the book in a moment here, but I just want to get your reflection because this book was written 10 years ago. Snowbird and the Wasatch have changed a lot in that 10 years. And there's a couple of big factors that I can identify, and I'm sure that you're aware of more. And one is just the sheer number of people moving to Utah and the number of people who want to be outside and, and by all accounts, driving more skier visits uh, to the few ski areas that are in Utah, because they really just don't have that many. And the second is the Icon Pass and the, you know, the mountain's always been there, but, but I think that it's just making people think about these destination resorts in a little bit different ways and, and makes them more accessible than perhaps they were before. So, so what's your take on how Snowbird has changed over the years for the better or the worse, given all these outside pressures? Well, all the outside pressures basically amount to simply people. There's just more, right. more people. I have a distorted view because I'm, they give me an all-access pass, which gets me on the early trams with my dear friends Ed Shawner and Craig Spooner the, and uh, Joey, who are the main guides um, for that early morning adventure. And mm -hmm. there, all of that intervening 10 years is stripped away. You're just standing at the top of Snowbird the same way you've stood at the top of Snowbird ever since you've been going there for however long that's been, for me, mm -hmm. 1978. Right. Um and you still experience the mountain as un, as divorced from, from the population <laughs> and everybody there. Even though in those early morning sessions we are with a group, it's a small group, <laughs> a manageable group. And you quickly learn whose strengths and weaknesses of everybody in the group very quickly. And that sorts itself out pretty naturally after a very short period of time. So 
Well, you shouldn't have to go there when there are people in the population you know is going to be lower. Don't go on a weekend. It's going to be terrible on a weekend. I don't, although Sunday afternoons are surprisingly good. I don't know why that suddenly drops off then, but it does. Um, avoid peaks. Peaks are terrible everywhere. I try to. I don't ski here on weekends. One of the reasons I fit boots is because what else am I going to do on a weekend? Certainly not ski. <laughs> so, yeah, that's where that comes from. Okay, so let's talk about Snowbird Secrets here. And I, I realize I've already kept you way past what I promised. So we'll we'll do a quick overview here. So each chapter, as you said, is devoted to a different aspect of skiing. They're all terrific, and and they're all very digestible, and 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 very. Very interesting the way you you tie technique to something very tangible and something that's story based, something that someone can really remember. Uh, the two things that that stood out to me, well, there's there's three really, is is just owning the fall line, right? And this is what you talk about in chapter two, just committing. And and this is probably the single biggest mistake that I see people make. And I'm not an instructor or anything, but you know, just turning across the fall line, I think, messes up a, a lot of people's days. And then uh, chapter 12, hands, and chapter 20, feet. So these things are all related, but if you could just talk a little bit about fall line, hands, and feet, and, and how you think about those, and how most skiers are doing them wrong. Okay. Um, the, remember I said that skiing was so positional. Positional is, is key when they we're thinking about these hands and feet fall line skiing. The path, the easiest path down the hill is still a more or less straight line. And what you're looking for as you're looking through this this mess of bumps is to sort of find that straight line. And of course, you know, on a longer run, you can't find it all the way up to the bottom from the top. You're going to have to do some line hunting, if you will, while you're already engaged. And in order to have the maximum amount of freedom of movement you want to imagine yourself in, your, in a still position, which, of course, you're not. You'll be zooming right along, but with both feet aimed straight down the fall line and with my skis weighted evenly. Why? Because from that position, I can do anything. I can go one foot over here, one foot over there, both feet over here, both feet over there. I can twist my feet to either side easily. I'm, I've got total control of where I'm going to go. And once I make a choice, I've got fewer time. My choices have been made, and now I'm going to have to complete whatever that that deviation from this natural position is. But but one of the reasons you can ski well in gnarly conditions is because you keep your trunk and oh, most importantly, mama, your hips. Mama, why? Because mama gets what mama wants. <laughs> you keep your hips up over your skis and over your heels. If your hips move, if the if your center of mass moves past the calcaneus rearward, you not, this is the movie's not going to end well. <laughs> right, turn out badly. So you have to be forward, which on a on a plane means you have to be tipping forward. Most people are going. Wait a minute, isn't that like going rocketing straight downhill? Yeah, if you do nothing else, you sure as hell will be. <laughs> so you'd better be prepared to do something, and that's where hand position comes in. Because if your hands are in the wrong place, the first thing you have to do is get them in the right place. My advice is don't get them in the wrong place. What are you doing with these hands? Keep get them up in front of you and get them in a way that allows you to be elastic. If you get them, I see a lot of people do that. And then they drive their hands down towards their knees for some reason. They're going, I don't like that idea too well. Why? Because you're, you're scrunching up your elasticity. I want you to stand a little taller, still with the hips forward, 
But I want you to, by using your hands as your guide, your hands, by lifting your hands, I'm also kind of elongating my spine a little bit. I'm getting myself a little lighter. And if I push my hands down, I seem to be increasing my ground force. So does those things really happen? Yeah, they really do. And they're led by the, obviously the hands aren't directly doing it, but they're, they're telling the rest of your muscle groups that that's what they you know, they're, tell, they're communicating with them. When I push this right hand forward, I want that right tibia to be driving forward. I'll make sure my hips are going to be over here. To make sure everything is in alignment, you want to start with a rock solid basic alignment. And then from that, in any given moment, you can move away from it and even far away from it. But then pick up your damn feet and move them back where they need to go. A lot of people keep their feet on the snow all the time, figuring they're supposed to somehow you know, lose points if they break ground with the snow. Well, if you're skiing a regular terrain in order to stay in the fall line, you have got you can't just ride a carved ski. It's not like surfing in that sense. You gotta pick up the goddamn surfboard and your feet and move it over here. You gotta move the whole base of operation, but but maintaining the integrity of that basic structure. And that's where your feet come in because your feet, you can, you can push in opposite. I can have my hands over here and my body orientation straight down the fall line, but I can move my feet 18 inches over to my left, Set my outside left ski and bang. Now I've got a platform that I can you know drive hard either across the hill if I want to, but probably not too far if it's moguls because it's going to get fucked up in a hurry <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so you're going to keep it in the fall line and keep your consciousness your awareness of hands staying high my body staying tall and my feet remaining active and i just all i do is look and move i'm just looking ahead so that i can anticipate and know what's coming next and then i can move my feet in position to succeed then i'm but i never actually look at my feet i just trust them if I look at my feet, I'm in a lot of problems because now I'm not looking where I'm going anymore. It's a really big mistake. So you're keeping your head up. You want your balance system to work. Well, your balance system works with when your vestibular canal is level, not when it's tilted down, not when it's on your chest and God knows wherever else people put their head. So keep get favor your inner ear, favor your arches. Remember your arch guys we were talking about earlier? They, and they're, they are hardwired into your vestibular canal. So you know, your feet, your body knows where your feet are. If you just start thinking about skiing with your feet, and that may sound so stupid, doesn't everyone ski with their feet? No, they don't. A lot of people ski with their knees or they think they're skiing with their hips, which looks hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Your feet are your agents that are working for you, but to make, let them have the maximum amount of versatility, you have to keep all the big muscle groups quiet. Well, there you go, guys. Free ski lesson for everyone out there. Probably more insightful than anything else that you've gotten in a long time. So as much as I would love to keep you and talk about this all day, Jackson, uh, I have already taken up way too much of your time. So tell people where they can pick up Snowbird Secrets to in a way that's going to support you. Because I know, obviously, everyone knows you can go buy anything on Amazon. Is that the best place or can they buy it on your website? Where should people go? I'm perfectly happy to have them buy them on Amazon. That's that's great. Buying them on the website doesn't do anything particularly beneficial for me, so I appreciate the effort. There is a there are hard copies also sold uh, in the Snowbird um, sort of they have a little gift shop in I think uh, level two of the structure of the you'll, if you go to Snowbird you'll know what I mean the one building that's there it's on level yeah 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 there's a book no I I visit it every time for t-shirts what about real skiers Jackson there's a 
so there's two parts of real, well, there's a lot of parts of the site, but, but there's a, there's a free tier and there's a paid tier. Mm -hmm. So just talk about the paid tier and what folks would get if they decide to support the site in that way. If, first of all, supporting the site also is another way of supporting Jackson. If you believe in all the other things that I do that are free, <laughs> one way you can say thank you is to send twenty four ninety five, nineteen ninety five for returning to uh, to realskiers.com. Um, what you get by being a member, you first of all, if, if you're coming for reviews, which is still the number one reason people come to the site. The reviews on the member site are longer. And you may say, well, so what? Well, because the truth is in the narrative. And I can tell you a little bit about the ski in a few sentences. And that's what we do on the free public site. But the deep dive is for the members. And if you're going to spend $1,000 on a pair of skis, take the deep dive. <laughs> There's a reason I write those extra 500 words or so. It's because you'll have a better understanding of what that ski does and whether or not it's a good match for you. You also have access to a library of what I call revelations. Other people would call them newsletters. Stretching back 10 years, I call them all the time and they are still relevant. And there are now approaching 300 of them um, in the revelations library. And I also did 46 podcasts this year, but they're all free. So in terms of member benefits, you get access to the full revelations library. You get the extra long narrative. And perhaps most importantly, you get me. It's not a forum. You're not going. To, your answer doesn't get passed along to some underling. I don't have any underlings. <laughs> uh, I answer you one on one. You can pour your little heart out. Tell me what your problems are. If it's equipment related, chances are I can fix it. And if it's a where to go, I can fix that. If it's a what do I need to get, I can fix that. If it's a who do I need to see, I can make introductions. I, I know everybody. Um, I didn't borrow somebody's dealer list, I made my own. How could I do that? Because I know everybody. That's how I can do that. <laughs> um, I recreated the Returning Skiers Handbook this year because I recognized from Fitting Boots that there's an enormous number of people coming back to our sport who identify as skiers, as skiers but everything they know is wrong. <laughs> right. So I created a free vehicle for them that's also just lives on the site. So there's a lot of things on Real Skiers that are free. The number one thing you get by paying your $19.95 or $24.95 is me. I, I can tell you that there's other places you can go and get the same information, but there isn't. Well, that's uh, that's a place that I have found extremely valuable. It, it is a terrific site. I encourage everyone to go check it out. Thank you, Jackson, so much for all of your insight. This has been a lot of fun. I, uh, I do have a trip to Tahoe planned next year. So I will look you up. Hopefully we can make some turns together and I can keep myself in one piece and keep up with you. <laughs> well, you'll be coming to me in one piece, hopefully. So yeah, it'll be great. Yep. I look forward to it, Stuart. That's Jackson Hogan, editor of realskiers.com. Jackson, that was amazing. I know that some of you saw a two hour runtime and almost didn't listen to this. But I bet you're wishing there were three more hours of that. So, so good. So insightful. Everyone listening to this needs to click over and give Jackson 25 bucks right now. Writing about skis and about skiing is a lost art, and that man is still doing it right. So thank you all for listening. Next up, going to the fringes and talking to the owners of teeny tiny Paul Bunyan, Wisconsin, which recently rose from the dead. Then, a very long list of general managers, <clears throat> including Perfect North Indiana, 
Snow Trails, Ohio, Bogus Basin, Idaho, Gore Mountain, New York, Sun Valley, Idaho, Monarch, Colorado, Sundance, Utah, and little place called Vail Mountain, Colorado, plus Joe Hessian, the CEO of Snow Operating, and Boyne Resorts CEO, Stephen Kircher. Yes, that is an awesome list, and I have had those awesome interviews coming your way for nearly three years now, which is why I'm comfortable telling you this. Starting in June, paid subscribers are going to get those conversations three full days before free subscribers. Look, I promised the podcast would always be free, and it will be, but the shift to a paid tier has gone very, very well for the storm. And I want to keep adding value for those who have committed to making this a long-term sustainable operation. To get those interviews when they're live, please sign up for the email list at stormskiing.com. Also, please follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.